Migratory Patterns. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. In India, they call them boomerang kids. I like the term returning foreigner. These are people who are first-generation nationals in one country who have migrated to the country that their parents originally left. My guest this week, Christiana Jew, is living this story. Her parents left China and raised their kids in New Zealand. Now she finds herself living in Beijing, starting a business and embracing her role as a bridge person, someone who can operate across cultures, helping each side understand the other. I really enjoyed our conversation. I first met Christiana not too long after she arrived in Beijing. It was at a charity event that her employer was organizing. I've gotten to know her over the past year as she started and has grown her business making and selling non-dairy yogurt, and I've been impressed with her at every turn. Lots of migrants feel like fish out of water. I know in my case, it's a rare day when I don't feel like a fish out of water at least three or four times. A lot of times, migrants are people who struggle mightily with their identity, but not Christiana. She's self-assured, goal-oriented, and knows exactly who she is and how she can use the skills that her origin story has given her to bring value to every situation that she finds herself in. It's pretty badass, actually. I'm excited to share the conversation with you. One quick programming note. I'm a huge nerd, and I'm a little bit embarrassed that I mispronounced Mordor in this interview, and you'll hear where it happens. I don't know why I did it, and I feel really ashamed, and I just wanted to apologize to the spirit of J.R.R. Tolkien and any fellow nerds out there who might be offended, and I know this sounds strange, but I just could not let it go, and now I'm done with the crazy stuff. So let's get to the interview with Christiana. Christiana Jew, welcome to Migratory Patterns. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Where is home? Home is New Zealand, which is a little island in the South Pacific. Some people might know it as Middle Earth, maybe, as well. Uh, but actually, there are three islands, technically. Um, North Island, South Island, and Stewart Island. A lot of people forget about the third island, uh, but it's a very beautiful oasis right down in the south. Where in New Zealand? I grew up in Auckland. Uh, but I also spent a lot of time uh, in Queenstown. In fact, I was living in Queenstown before I came to Beijing. And so for me, home is kind of between these two places. Uh, Auckland is where the family is, um, where uh, I went to school, where all the memories are, where um, a lot of my best friends still are. Queenstown is just where where the heart is, I guess. Um, it's got beautiful mountains. It's a beautiful alpine resort town down in the South Island, uh, nestled under the Southern Alps of New Zealand and uh, also by a beautiful lake. Yeah, really great hiking in the summer and then skiing in the winter. And uh, I've got some really good friends down there as well. So yeah, so these two. Oh, and of course the wine. There's great wine down there too. So that's very important. <laughs> very me. important. Yeah. So let's get all the Hobbit, uh, Elf, and uh, Mo- Modor, uh, Modor uh, jokes out of the way. Right. So let's say there are lots of Hobbits. <laughs> Everyone walks yeah. around in bare feet because they're hobbits. There's lots yeah. of elves. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's we'll get that out of the way. <laughs> I am a huge nerd. I have to say I've had Kiwis on the show before. Uh-huh. And I always have a dig about hobbits or whatever right. just because I can't resist. I know it's stupid, but I can't resist. Yeah. Well, actually, true story. I am officially too tall to be a hobbit. Oh. When uh, they were looking for extras to act. I, I wasn't actually around to you know apply, but I was told the story post the fact that they were looking for people uh, who were below, I think, a meter fifty-eight or a meter sixty or something, and mm. I'm like just above, about like uh. two or three centimeters. So, 
you know that don't uh, even qualify yeah i'm too i'm too tall to be a hobbit and i i'm not too tall to be many things because i'm only a meter 62 so <laughs> yeah uh something you know I'm too tall to be to a say. hobbit not tall enough to be an elf definitely not oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe a christmas elf but not a <laughs> not a lord of the rings elf <laughs> so how did you get from uh queensland up to china so from Queenstown to China. Queenstown. Queensland yes. is in Australia. <laughs> Queenstown, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Queensland, yeah. Australia. Yeah. In fact, actually, I was working for the tourism board in Queenstown, so I often had to correct people yeah. uh, that Queenstown's in New Zealand. And I'm Queenstown's glad that I'm Australia. just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, so I, I worked for the New Zealand Tourism Board and Regional Tourism Board in, uh, in New Zealand for about six years, and uh, um, I was being groomed to be a China and Asia expert. I used to come to China on business trips and things but I'd never lived in China um, as an adult. Uh, so I'm ethnically Chinese. I grew up in a very bicultural environment, uh, speaking only strictly Chinese at home. Really? <laughs> yeah. In fact, my mother, uh, in order to keep our Chinese language uh, and culture alive, refused to speak to us in English, uh, even when our friends were over. So wow. she, would, she would speak to our friends in English, but not to us. Anyhow, that's another story. But um, basically, I thought, uh, you know, I was being groomed to become an expert uh, to the point where I was doing road shows uh, around New Zealand, kind of talking to the operators and the Maranpa kind of tourism attraction operators about how to uh, set up a, a Weibo account and mm. like the importance of WeChat and stuff like that. But I just felt this disconnect, uh, like disconnect because I never actually lived in China. So um, I thought I would look for an opportunity to, to live honestly somewhere in Asia or China to kind of get that uh, ground experience or 接地气, as we say in mm. Chinese. Um, so, yeah, in 2014, I uh, landed a job as a consultant at a luxury travel company called Wild China. And that's how I got here. I got to say 2014. Now, I've. I think I must have known you since your early days, or at least have met you, because I seem to remember you being here longer than that. But of oh, course, really? <laughs> China does, Beijing does that to you. It, it messes with your concept of time, because you'll see someone you haven't seen since your first year, and you'll be like, oh, how you doing? How's everything going? And it feels like you saw them yesterday. But then you'll see someone that you maybe saw last year, and it'll feel like it's been forever. It's just, it, it, I call it Beijing time. It just really screws with your head. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do it. So how, how old were you when you came here? So You'd been out of college for a while. You're not like one of those. Yeah, no, know. no. I, I was 26. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I started working basically in my final year at university. In fact, I got my job offer before I even did my final exam. So for me, the fi there wasn't huge incentive to, <laughs> you know, I had to get that degree. I had to get the paper, but I was just like, yeah. You know, uh, I don't have to. Yeah, um, I was lucky. I was fortunate. Yeah. By then I was well into my uh, career as a young professional. And of course, I was uh, um, with my tiger parents as well, raised to be, you know, a little bit of an A type and uh, uh, wanted to, of course, um, further my career. And I, I saw coming here and getting this this experience on the ground being the best way to kind of catapult to that next stage. It's very methodical. It's very planned out. Yeah, yeah. I like to have these structures, um, kind of like 10-year intentions, if you will, of where I want to be with my life. And then I'll do it and I'll accept whatever comes. But I think it's nice to kind of have these intentions to kind of 
funnel your energy into a certain direction. Is that something that your parents kind of drilled into you? Is it always have a plan, step by step, have your checklist and, and know where you're going? Yes, actually, that definitely came from my father. I remember actually in uh, intermediate school, which I think in the US you would call middle school um, or junior high maybe, we had to make these portfolios with our um, creative writing and stuff in the year, but also we had to do this like cover page uh, where we wrote down our personal values. And uh, I wrote think, plan, action as my personal values. <laughs> Not like kindness and creativity, love, you know, happiness, whatever. It was like think, plan, action because that's what my dad drilled into me <laughs> yeah since uh since a very young age yeah. is it a chinese thing or is it just your dad i don't know i mean mm. they they say there's you know tiger parents and i i really think that you know if we do put it down to a chinese thing it is really the um the context in which uh this previous generation was brought up there was a lot of competition um you had to really work to get somewhere because there are so and i think it's still the case now in china there are just so many people um and really to stand out above the crowd i mean there were you know 1.4 1.6 billion <laughs> i should know this number um people in china and really it's hard to stand out from the crowd so you really have to be methodical and you have to be um very determined to do that and you have to do that from a young age it's it's very competitive which is a complete uh, contrast to what life is like in New Zealand. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Really, really different. So How so? Well, I mean, we have four and a half million people in New Zealand. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the the whole of Chaoyang district has more than that, I think, in Beijing. Yeah. And, uh, and we value creativity and individuality. And, uh, and I remember like going to school and having classes like cooking and sewing and, you know, art being mandatory and stuff like that. And my parents going, what, what's going on? I mean, like we are very, very, um, fortunate of course, but like we also taught to survive in our natural environment. So, uh, in our school, I mean, being, Growing up in Auckland, we have twin harbors. Uh, so we're an isthmus type of geographical form, I guess. Um, and there are a lot of coastlines. So we uh, had a program which uh, was called Waterwise, and it taught kids how to survive basically in the sea. And we did things like sailing and kayaking and uh and surfing and things like that i mean you know sailing especially is such a bourgeois thing <laughs> <laughs> but we were doing this you know and we were a public school and uh and it was all just a part of the curriculum so my parents just you know thought that was very interesting of course they um embraced everything this is why they moved out of china to get a different environment um for us but it's definitely a far cry from the rote learning uh, ways of the Chinese education system. Yeah. 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 So. The very famous word here. Mm -hmm. No gao kao in New Zealand? <laughs> no gao kao, but um, as it's called. But we do have a system called NCEA. Or if you went to a fancy in, uh, in, uh, like uh, private school, you might do the IB uh, right. or the Cambridge. They, they did offer those things as well. But the, yeah. the nationwide system is called NCEA. And it's actually interesting. Um, so NCA came in uh, 
kind of just before I went to high school. Um, and it was very controversial because you didn't get uh, your normal like kind of A, B, C, D, you know, failures. You There were only three categories for um uh, for the major exams, you either had uh, achieved or not achieved, which is failed, or oh, full categories actually, not achieved, which is failed, achieved, which is, you know, you passed, uh, merit, which is, you know, you're doing better than just passing, and then excellence, and that's it. <laughs> and my parents just n- did not understand that. You know, because if you got excellence, but what does that mean? Is that 80%? Is that 90%? Please quantify this. Yeah, is that, is that 96%? Like only above, you know, 95% is it acceptable. How do I discipline my child when you give me just the, this band of excellence? And then what was worse was there were these assignments where you just had achieved and not achieved. You didn't even have... Pass, fail. Yeah, pass, exactly. Fail. Just pass, fail. Yeah. And like that really... Um, you know, I think uh, illustrates the difference between the education and, and you know, the notion of uh, what is valued in, uh, in meritocracy, you know, mm-hmm. in, in New Zealand versus in China. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was interesting. You said something at the beginning about your job that you got after you'd started, I guess, while you were at university. Yeah, I had an internship in my final year. And right, I got right. Offered a job. You had said you were being groomed to be mm. this China expert. Now, mm. I'm interesting it's interesting you use that word and I'm kind of curious, was this kind of a, a line of work or were you focused on doing something that was involved with China or do you feel like they saw you as someone who could who could be someone who could be that connection to the Chinese market? Absolutely the latter. So, mm. I grew up kind of really reveling my language arts, I guess, my creative writing, uh, the subjects I did best in uh, school, in high school, was uh, English and history and classical studies, things that you had to like, write long, lengthy essays for. Um, and so when I went to university, I thought, you know, I I wanted, well, actually, I struggled with identity a lot. I knew I was Chinese and I spoke Chinese and all of that. And uh my parents always said, you know, it's nice to have this language because it's going to be useful for you in your career one day. But I was always like, but my, you know, I, my language skills are so good. Like my essay skills are so good. Like I can write articles and stuff like that. And what do you know, mom? Yeah. I'm 14 and I know everything. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I don't want to um, feel like I'm an ESL student because I'm not like, you know, I can like compete and just because I have an Asian face doesn't mean that I uh, have the language abilities to, to kind of match that sort of stereotype. Um, so I chose to do, uh, to study journalism and PR, much to my father's <laughs> horror who thought I was on track to become, you know, a, a lawyer <laughs> and do law. Yeah. And so I, I went into that and thinking, you know, I'll I want to go into PR, I want to like be a wordsmith, I want to use kind of those language skills and stuff like that. And I did do PR, uh, but I ended up doing PR uh, for Tourism New Zealand, the New Zealand Tourism Board for China. So what happened was every year out of our program, uh, it's a a very good program that we have um, at the Auckland University of Technology is uh, quite often regarded as the best um, communications program in New Zealand. Um, we just had like one, um, I guess, uh, one long standing spot for an intern in the, uh, tourism New Zealand office, which was always very competitive because it's a, it's a fun job. I mean, you, in their international media team, like 
you get to uh, go bungee jumping with um, with celebrities like Justin Bieber. We we would throw him off a bridge. We did <laughs> well, America's who want yeah. to do that? <laughs> <laughs> we did like America's Next Top Model stuff. So you get to like meet Tyra and all that stuff. So it was very competitive. Mm. And I got the I got the job because they uh, were seeing an increase in uh, Chinese. This was in uh, 2009, so they were seeing so like, right after the free trade agreement. Yeah, yeah, they were seeing an increase in Chinese uh, visitors and actually Chinese tourists. It was like the start of the big Chinese tourist boom as well. Now uh, the Chinese, I guess, outbound tourism market is the near, if not the biggest in the world. Um, so yeah, they, they were thinking we need an intern with the skills because they didn't have anyone in the team actually with the language skills. Um, they have a office in Shanghai, of course, but they didn't have anyone in the New Zealand side doing things with the language and cultural skills. So yeah, so it was absolutely because they saw that I could be a bridge and yeah, and I just was sucked into the economic gravity <laughs> of China, despite my own, you know, wanting to rebel. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I think it made a lot of sense. And I realized that I'm able to really play up, uh, play to my strengths and, uh, and create value, which to me as a personal uh, value was very important. So yeah, so it worked out great in the end and my mother was right <laughs> <laughs> she'll be glad to hear that yes yeah i tell her this a lot actually she yeah she appreciates it you said we yes oh yes i have a sister you have a sister yes one yeah. sister mm -hmm. older or younger sister. older older she's 15 months older she's almost like a twin um oh. we grow up sharing the same friends pretty much and uh yeah um so we're very very close yeah oh. yeah is she here in china as well she is. She happens to be in Shanghai. Wow. Also pulled in by economic gravity. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, uh, so was... your parents left, but their kids went back. Exactly. They always ask us, what happened? <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's it's great to have my sister so close as well. But yeah, it, it's a. I think it's a similar story with a lot of Chinese diaspora. Like you us. think so? Yeah, yeah. I think we... Um, uh, my sister also has another friend that she met who's... Um, parents uh, moved to Sweden. Actually, my dad moved to New Zealand initially on a government scholarship to study in New Zealand. Uh, he did his master's at Auckland University. And uh, her friend, his father, did his uh, yeah, um, higher education in Sweden. And then also ended back up, uh, like back in China. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Do you, do you see yourself staying here for a while or do you do you see yourself eventually going back like or do you even have a plan that far out right so uh i do have a plan oh. well i should have assumed of course you have your action plan yeah yeah um so uh for me as i said home is new zealand um and it's across uh auckland and queenstown and i'll want to set up my home base in new zealand eventually uh when that's where i want to kind of i think having a sense of home for kids also is very important for me to I think whilst I think it's really nice to have all these international influences and you want to kind of raise worldly children I think having that stability and that sense of home is really important so I want to create that in New Zealand but in China I, I don't really see myself ever just upping and leaving I'm not you know I don't see myself as uh, an expat who's been airdropped into this market to do this one contract and then I'm gonna leave I mean um, especially now that I have my own business uh, it's really very open-ended so I see for the near future um, next you know up to five years I'll definitely be 
based mostly in China and focusing on growing the business, which is very much China focused. And then eventually, you know, I'll want to set up my home base in New Zealand, but I always come back and forth. And I really believe in uh, creating value. And, uh, and also I'm very passionate about being a bridge. And I think my, yeah, my strength is my language um, and my bicultural kind of sensibilities. And I really see that to play to my strengths and everything and to be closer to my true self, I yeah, will always be going between China and, and New Zealand. Well, I have to say, this is the third discussion I've had with someone who's either got a New Zealand connection or is from there like you. And to a person now, everyone has in some fashion been like, yes, New Zealand is where the home base will be, but there will be connections to either China or some other place. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm, my wife spent time in New Zealand for almost four years, and she doesn't quite say it that way because our future is really kind of just we're on the beginning of this long journey. Who knows where we're going to end up? But, you know, that is just in the back of I think anyone who's been in New Zealand for any length of time, it's in the back of their mind. That's where you want to end up somehow. Like, that's where you want to be. I, I don't know what it is. I got to go down and check it out. <laughs> well, you know, New Zealand's fast turning into the lifeboat of the world. It is, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, even the likes of Peter Thiel have yeah. uh, bought houses and stuff over there. <laughs> now, you mentioned you mentioned your business, which I do want to talk about mm. because that's how I've gotten to know you best. Mm-hmm. But you also mentioned something to me before we started recording, which I really identified with. And you said... You've always been entrepreneurial or you've always been about building things mm. in terms of like communities or organizations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like you yeah. said, even when you were in high school, you did this? Yeah, yeah. So actually, and it's actually pinned to uh, identity a lot. Um, so for me, what's really important and in every job that I, I, I do or um, also in my business now, I want to be creating value where it's needed in a meaningful way. And I want to be as close to my true self as possible. So when I was in high school, um, I uh, struggled with identity quite a bit um, in terms of, uh, you know, growing up in a, in a bicultural kind of environment, wanting to fit in at school because that's what anybody, any kid wants. Um, but then also being very aware of the fact that I am uh, Chinese and I've got the language skills and I've got the kind of cultural sensibilities and understanding. And then I also found that um, this was uh, in the kind of early 2000s, there was uh, an influx of immigrants uh, from China into New Zealand that were more kind of recent. So Chinese immigration to New Zealand has a long history. I mean, the country was founded in 1840. Chinese have been there since 1860. But uh, they were. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, they came during the gold rush. Of um, so they, uh, there are different, but there are different types of Chinese in, in the society. So uh, there are the ones who have been there for multiple generations. Um, they're very much Kiwi. Uh, don't speak any Chinese at all. Uh, don't really have a huge affiliation with the Chinese culture. And then you're like were, me with being Irish. I'm seventh generation Irish American. I mean, it's like I, I'm not. Right. I'm, I'm Irish and kind of like, oh, I live in a town that has a lot of Irish people. That's right. about as Irish. As yeah. I am. yeah. <laughs> um, and then so and then there were uh, kind of smaller group, um, but still there of immigrants like that came during our wave. Uh, 
which is you know they were there either um, as uh, skilled migrants or to uh, to study. This is in the kind of eighties, early nineties. So after the opening. Yeah, yeah. correct. Eighties, early nineties, and uh, and then these kind of the kids of these immigrants. Um, some of them spoke Chinese. Uh, a lot of them, most of them, in fact, didn't um, because they wanted to fit in. And it all came down to how strict their parents were in enforcing kind of the cultural stuff. And then, um, so in the early 2000s, there was another wave because the, the government wanted to bring more capital into the country. They had another wave of kind of... Uh, investment migrants, I guess. So if you invested uh, in real estate or uh, or in a business, uh, then you uh, could migrate or your family could migrate to New Zealand. And so these new wave of immigrants really struggled uh, because um, they... Uh, There's no like pressure to assimilate. You are kind of, if you're buying access, that's a yeah, yeah, If you're exactly. buying access, you don't feel the need to... Correct, yeah. correct, yeah. yeah. And then also by this time I was a little bit older and so these kids had done their full schooling you know, primary and middle school in China and then trying to fit in in high school was, uh, you know, uh, quite difficult. And so I thought, you know, I realized um, they were coming to me because I had the language skills and the cultural skills to help them uh, oh. kind of gain access to uh, knowledge about, you know, what... I mean, what club is this and how do I join it? And like, you know, how do I, who do I make friends with uh, to, to be able to join that club or whatever? And, or even just like homework stuff. And then I realized that um, there was a need to kind of connect the cultures and also on the other side, kind of take away the uh, us and them kind of mentality with the, the non-Chinese kids to kind of get to understand the new kids and, and you know, celebrate our differences and similarities. So I got involved in uh, something called a, the Chinese Cultural Group. And I uh, started different um, activities within the Chinese Cultural Group itself. So it was, it was like a... I guess loosely like a club but then you know within the club you can kind of set your own programs and agendas and stuff like that and I saw this was uh, through art actually and through theater was a good uh, way to connect actually all levels so we had the um, uh, mostly like the the immigrant kids of parents who kind of came around when my dad did and couldn't speak any Chinese but still wanted to connect to the Chinese culture they wanted to be a part of it too so they can find themselves and then the newer kids found a, a safe haven where they could come and uh, you know and um, be with other kids who uh, understood them didn't judge them but then at the same time could learn because all of our content was in English so I actually uh, with my sister uh, created um, something called Chinese the Chinese Drama Club and we would put on a show uh, which we would write and direct and produce <laughs> with our little friends. Did you do Peking Opera? <laughs> no, it wasn't Peking Opera. It was actually more like uh, just a, a um, you know stage show, a, a play. Um, but we would take um, aspects of Chinese mythology. Oh, cool. Um, or, yeah. Did you Journey to the West or something like that? Uh, we did some kind of Odyssey-like stuff where we put in... So our first one that we did actually was based on the classic uh, Chinese Romeo and Juliet story, Chinese Romeo and Juliet. They weren't meant to be together, but then they loved each other and all of that stuff to kind of draw the similarities. Mm -hmm. And we did this in English, but we also managed to hire these traditional Chinese costumes from the local Kung Fu club and everything so there was a lot of drama and spectacle oh, and sounds that sort so of thing. cool yeah it was fun and, and then we did a, another one where we um did the uh, uh like milan story actually every year the school uh 
Chinese cultural group put on something called the Chinese Extravaganza, which was one night where all of the different parts of the cultural group, um, like there was a choir, there were dance groups, and then we started this drama group. We just put on this variety show. Um, but eventually our project got so big that we integrated these guys. So it was like a review and we integrated them into our show. So we, yeah, it, it turned into a bit of a musical in between. You'd have like, you know, traditional dance group coming in and, and then during some sort of scene, like uh, there was another show we did once that um, was to do with Bao Tian, which is a very famous uh, judge in, in Chinese folklore. That's one of the things I started in high school. And then after that, uh, uh, when I went to university, um, I got really kind of into uh, cultural exchange again, and another very uh, familiar theme. But um, well, at that point, were there a lot of Chinese or just foreigners in general coming to New Zealand for school? Uh, in New York, yeah, in university for sure. Um, and there were a lot of uh, international students who were just there, that classic kind of international student format. Yeah, but I, I think the cultural exchange that I did at university was a little bit different. It was kind of more outwards. I got really into uh, traveling overseas. Yeah, in New Zealand, we have this... this uh, because we are in a corner of the world, we, uh, we tend to um, develop this curiosity for... Uh, you know, for the outside world. I was going to say almost any travel in New Zealand <laughs> is overseas travel. Yes, absolutely. It's always like a long haul flight somewhere, you know. People say, oh gosh, it must be so horrible. But to me, it's just a sleep away, so it's fine. But um, I wanted to also create these opportunities where we don't just go and travel and, you know, be a tourist, but we can go and actually do something meaningful. So I got involved in a club called ISEC, which is uh, a kind of, um, it started in uh, France and uh, typically part of business schools where um, they would, we would build these exchange programs where we would host uh, students from other universities outside and we would have projects to put them to work on. Um, they could be social projects for NGOs, local NGOs that we partner with, or also um, like quite sought after competitive internships with big multinational companies such as uh, Microsoft was a big supporter and Unilever and stuff like that. My university actually that I went to, it was more of an arty university. We we did have a good business program, but um, I don't think they did a lot of the extracurricular stuff like the University of Auckland did. So what I did was I really liked this club. I had a lot of friends who um, went to the University of Auckland across the road. And um, so then I got involved in starting our university chapter of this club. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and it also, you know, it was actually like running a business. I got involved and became the marketing director, and uh, yeah, had to kind of um, come up with our own campaigns. I partnered with PlayStation and uh, and a local kind of sports club to put like a, a climbing wall in the middle of the campus, and you know, you had to be the fastest to get to the top for prizes, like PlayStation prizes and stuff like that. So yeah, that was a lot of fun, but again, um, less than actually creating a business for profit it was more of a, um, a club around interests and community, community and connecting yeah yeah and then when I came to Beijing um, actually in 2014 I so I did a lot of theater in high school and then after I graduated I also got involved in community theater as well kind of one point at the height of it was uh, played lead in Miss Saigon in New Zealand's biggest theater uh, the civic theater so um, it was great. Um, so I, uh, the artistic side was a huge side of my life for balance. And when I came to Beijing, um, I really struggled to find 
a similar thing here. And so then myself and a few friends created an acapella group and uh, we're called Jingxing. Jingxing, I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, very, very much uh, in tune with the city, <laughs> Jingxing. And yeah, and then over the years, it's kind of grown and created a structure where I wanted to gift this to the community. So I created a um, more kind of sustainable leadership structure that can be passed along. We have elections every year and that sort of thing. But again, I, I loved creating kind of things for the community and to connect people. And it's that's so, my kind of background. That, that is so interesting that you kind of have that pathway towards, you know, and now it's, now you've got your business, which I, I do want to talk about, but mm-hmm. it, I, I actually didn't know this about you Mm -hmm. and that you had this idea because it's something I've just discovered about myself. Mm. So when I first arrived in Beijing, I was involved in the couch surfing community. Oh, great. I also did couch surfing. Yeah. Before, 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 yeah. yeah, Before before the downfall. Before Airbnb, right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, before they changed all the stuff and made it for profit and all that. But Mm. anyway, when I was here, I found myself getting involved with the community and I didn't even know I was doing it, but I was doing community building mm. within the you know first couple of years that we were organizing events and mm-hmm. we did a, what's called a couch crash, I think it's called, oh, where yeah. you basically would invite either couch surfers from around the world uh-huh. through the through the network or in one other city. Oh, we did invasions. Okay, so there's couch, there were couch crashes and invasions. Uh-huh. Invasions is when your community in your town would contact another community in another town and say, we all want to come and visit. And you'd get like, you know, 30, 40, 50 people. And you would go to that other city and they would all host you. Mm-hmm. And you would just do stuff together. That's so cool. You know, we never got that to work, but we did what's called a couch crash, which is basically you and the community plan a whole series of events. Usually it was over a weekend or three days. And you would invite through the network, you'd post in all the city Mm. group pages, you'd say, hey, everyone, we're doing this thing. Come, everyone come to Beijing for the weekend, this Mm -hmm. weekend, and we're going to have events all day, guided tours, parties, all this stuff. Well, I thought a a weekend was stupid. (laughs) So we did a two-week couch crash in Beijing. Wow. So we had a group of volunteers. We had scheduled events every day. We had parties. We booked out nightclubs, and it you know we had this organizing committee, and we met for months planning everything, and it was fantastic. And you know when couchsurfing kind of petered out, I found myself working uh, after a couple of years in the uh, vegan community, and kind of doing the same thing, organizing events and yeah. doing all these different things. And now, kind of the way you what you do with jinx, jinxing. I just kind of stepped back. I was like, okay, get other people involved, yeah. have some meetings, try yeah. to plan some things, but then say, okay, now you do this, yeah, now you do this, and, and now I'm going to yeah. not do it. And now they're off to the races doing their yeah. own thing. Yeah, I mean, you started Vegans in Beijing. That's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, the, the group was there. They just weren't doing anything. Uh-huh. And I, as a selfish person, wanted things to happen. So, uh-huh. I, you know, you got to sell it, right? right? I approached it kind of like a business. I was uh-huh. like, if I want to have good food at my friends restaurants i gotta get people to go in and how do we we, exactly a purpose to it you know yeah so anyways but now that has led me to think oh i could actually do a business and that's what Mm -hmm. migration media kind of is you know it's like a community of all these people doing this type of work which is creating content that is for and about and by hopefully you know people living the international migrant experience it's like oh we can make this a business Mm -hmm. and oh my god i kind of 
know how to do this now because right. I've been doing this other stuff that I never thought of like a business, you yeah, know? And, yeah. and, and it's interesting when you said women before we started talking that you kind of found yourself following that same pathway because mm-hmm. now you're starting a business. This isn't some community theater thing. You've got a real business. So why don't you yeah. introduce it? Because yeah. I love it. <laughs> so I uh, started a business um, making plant-based alternative foods. Did China. it start as a plant-based alternative? Because if I remember correctly, yeah. it was because you can't handle dairy, right? Correct. Yeah. So actually it started as a dairy alternative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it all came because uh, I, I mean, I'd always been a little bit dairy intolerant. Uh, but then after I moved to China, my body just kind of freaked out. and It became more Chinese. Yeah. Somehow. Well, actually, no, it's, it's uh, in Chinese, it's called shui tu bu fu. So um, basically, I am not in tune with the water and the earth in this oh, land. Oh, no. we got to get <laughs> so, your chi yeah. figured out. <laughs> exactly. There's some weird chi going on. Uh, and uh, I started, my body just my immune system just went on hyper alert and some of the things that I was uh, just sensitive to, I became very allergic to and I had huge health issues, uh, especially around dairy and egg. Mm. And so then I um, needed a way to, to heal my gut. I yeah spent a bit of time kind of, I mean, while my career was doing better because I came and, um, you know, started uh, really getting in tune with the Chinese kind of tourism market here. Um, I just found myself getting more and more tired. My skin was horrible. I had really bad eczema. I had to basically wear long sleeves and long pants all summer. My first summer here, which is in Beijing at 40, over 40 degrees Celsius. Not fun. And muggy. and Not oh. fun at all. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, yeah, then actually a very good friend of mine, Gracie, a Kiwi diplomat, who moved here around the same time that I did, um, made me my first batch of coconut yogurt handmade like you know homemade coconut yogurt in New Zealand coconut yogurt is very popular but um I was looking for it here I was like you know I can I can have probiotics without it being dairy I just need to have coconut yogurt and then I looked on Taobao and I looked everywhere and I couldn't couldn't find it and I was just completely you know shattered and sad and so she she created this thing and for me this was like kind of some sort of light that came out of you know this darkness like wow this thing is so amazing. And then, you know, then I started making it myself and, um, and I was very about, uh, very, um, passionate about, uh, also, uh, building community around food. Right. And, you know, I, I'd still like, even though I had all these, uh, I, I was on a very strict elimination diet, wasn't eating out, but I still wanted to go to friends kind of birth, uh, like parties and house parties and stuff like that, but didn't want them to feel sorry for me that I couldn't eat dairy. I was like so sick of hearing people saying, oh, I'm so sorry, you can't eat this ice cream. I didn't prepare any dessert for you. So then I would start bringing this yogurt it's and the bane other of every vegan's existence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just like, no, you don't need to be sorry for me. It's not a disability. You know? <laughs> like actually it makes it more fun and now I'm more in tune with my body. So that's even better. So I would bring this uh, yogurt and then people would love it. And it was, yeah, it'd be a hit. And they'd, they'd say, you know, it's not available in China. Why don't you, why don't you make it available? Why don't you sell it? And, uh, and because I'm, you know, all about providing something, providing value. And after that, I realized after my own struggles, I realized that despite my passion for creating. So the reason why I wanted to come to China was uh, also, I saw that there weren't good enough products in New Zealand for the Chinese market, which uh, was increasing you know, there were more and more Chinese travelers going to New Zealand, but I just it felt like it was very, it was very obvious that there weren't good enough products that were ready to service the specific 
client, whether it be from a language perspective or cultural perspective or whatever. So I actually wanted to come to China, um, understand more intimately what the needs were and then go back and create a business. So creating a business was always on the cards. I had this goal of, or this intention, I I should say, of doing this before I was 30. So, um, but then I realized, you know, whilst creating a more, uh, a more in tune tourism product is well and good and, you know, all of that, but people only, I mean, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs travels quite high up and it's only really going to fit, you know, be able to touch a certain level of people, but on a very base level, every single day, you know, people have to eat. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have good enough options on the market and people are becoming unhealthy people are you know just making do it's just not good enough you know and i felt like i could really where i could really create value was in that space and that's when i decided you know i'm gonna give this um give this food thing a try i'm gonna uh being a marketer i loved creating brands anyway so i was like i'm gonna just you know register my brand and do this design and and see what happens and you know see how it goes and yeah within about six months or so of doing that i had i was making so much yogurt that i had to quit my job and focus on that because i was running myself to the ground and i could just say we're all glad you did i got actually one of your bags right here oh great (laughs) yogurt i'm gonna say the brand name not because i'm advertising but because i I really like it and i get money back for this for giving it back to you yes you do because you recycle which we do do. it's one of the reasons it's out here it's not out here to because we're audio so no one can see i'm holding it but i want you to see so you give me the great fly back (laughs) (laughs) yes yes absolutely yeah i mean um for us yeah the 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 plant-based stuff it started from a health thing um, of being you know needing the dairy alternative and then uh, also because i didn't eat egg anyway it was easy for me to just transfer to vegan straight vegan not that, just vegetarian because I, <laughs> I remember yeah. when when i first started seeing your product uh-huh. i think one of your first varieties it actually wasn't even vegan because you used, no i had honey it had honey yeah, in it, right I, yeah. remember, I remember just being like oh that's too bad yeah and i wasn't angry i'm not one of those vegans it's like why are you i don't care about that but i was just so interested that someone would make a non-dairy right. yogurt but like it's not vegan like it just didn't compute in my brain yeah and 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 then and you obviously weren't vegan but have you transitioned now are you plant-based now yeah yeah we're fully plant-based i mean you personally oh me personally i i'm still a flexitarian okay i'm trying to be as vegan as possible and for me it's um actually initially for health reasons and then um for environmental reasons and that's Mm -hmm. why i wanted to talk about the recycling because for me the environmental thing is very important also coming from new zealand Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we have that ingrained into our minds that we always have to consider uh, the environmental factor and the footprint that we have. So um, so that's why from day one, I created recyclable packaging, which uh, also fed into, you know, this like uh, virtuous um, loyalty cycle, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. And then uh, so so the vegan thing as well is I realized, um, you know, reading into actually January this year is when I made the shift oh. um, because I did Veganuary. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. How did that go? It was, it was great. Mm. I, my body loved it. Um, and then the I did actually Veganuary plus Dry January. And what I found actually was that... Oh, my God. If I don't vegan, drink and I don't <laughs> eat a lot of crap, I feel good. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> that was the one thing. But the other thing I figured was that actually being vegan was way easier than being dry. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't miss the meat. I, d- I really didn't miss the meat. 
Um, I mean, I never really cooked meat at home anyway because in China it's the honest truth is it's hard to find good clean meat oh, yeah. um you know uh, that's not exorbitant in price as well at the same time and yeah and then so i thought you know it's so wasteful if i'm not even you know really needing meat why should i be polluting and waste you know being so wasteful towards towards the environment in that way yeah, yeah. actually i i you know i came to i came to being plant-based from I, I, I'm not actually not sure if I've told this story on the podcast, but I came to be plant-based kind of through being vegetarian. Like I had a, you know, long extended breakup and I ended up doing a lot of drinking and, you know, just eating like garbage and not going out and yeah. it was just awful. And I was, my health was getting away from me. I could start to feel it. And I said, you know something? I ah, screw it. I'm just going vegetarian. Like right. and there was some stuff that kind of led me down that road. But at one point I just said, I'm going to go vegetarian. And I said it. After I take this last trip to the U.S. and eat all the things, right? <laughs> so yeah. it came back and then I, you know, my wife, now wife and I got together and she's vegan and I had already decided to be vegetarian and she kind of showed me the possibilities and I mm-hmm. said, no, I'll just be vegan. Screw it. Yeah. Right? But I came to it for a health and environmental reason mm. and I approach being plant-based and veganism as like, it just makes business sense. It's just... Eating animal products is just so when you think when you step back mm. from it, like when you separate yourself from it, mm-hmm. which is what I've kind of discovered is like you step back from it, you start to see it for what it is, which is it's absurd. It's mm. absurd. So like I'm gonna eat something that is really just reformulated protein that started as plant in the right. first place. And I'm gonna shove it through this animal. It's just what it is. It's a factory process. Mm-hmm. I'm sh- taking the grain and the grass and the soy. I'm shoving it through this thing and it's getting rejiggered and it's, you know, reformulated into different protein strands and it takes years to do it. It takes untold of gallons of water. It produces unbelievable amounts of right. toxic byproducts. Mm-hmm. For what? Exactly. A, a, a taste and texture in my mouth that I like and I can get it from another place. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's mm. completely illogical. Yeah. So that's like how I approach, that's how I kind of came yeah, to it. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. I, and now that I've been it for, for a while, that's just how I see it. Yeah. And you know, the thing is being plant-based has, uh, as a foodie. So the reason why I'm flexitarian <laughs> is because I, I am a foodie and I am curious about everything. And I, um, you know, I don't consume meat, uh, only really for research purposes, really. So like then later I can make a plant-based version of it. I, and um, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I had a ve- one of the first vegans that I ever knew. She was right. a good friend of mine and she was a chef and she would actually say the same thing. Like, right. like I'm a vegan. She was very passionate about it, but she would say it's not a religion because, you know, it can't be because sometimes I have to try other things. Exactly. Yeah. And also I have a lot of respect for people's traditions and, uh, and so when I travel and stuff like that, if, you know, the, the, best thing to have in Mongolia is their their yak meat yeah. uh, stir fry or whatever you know I, I, I will respect and also try and try to understand the culture in that way as well through the food but you know one thing though being um, being a foodie and being vegan uh, the joy people often say it's so limiting like when I was on my very strict elimination elimination diet in which I couldn't even eat like any nightshade so that's like no tomatoes no eggplants and um, no like no strawberries no citrus people were like but what then what can you eat and I was just like <laughs> actually this opens up 
a whole I hate everything body. else. Yeah, <laughs> like I can actually try and figure out how to create this texture, mm-hmm. you know, given these like limitations. Like, and and I came to realize that you know, um, you know, the food industry is quite lazy in that they feel like they can just keep feeding people the same crap because then they can, uh, you know, um, optimize their scale of efficient, you know, their scales of manufacturing and stuff like that, which I get from a business perspective, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, from a consumer's perspective, it's a little bit unfair. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so for me, it's, uh, this whole plant-based thing has opened up new possibilities to create interesting things. Like people are just sticking to in New Zealand, classically meat and three veg because that's just what they're brought up on. And that's I grew up on meat and potatoes right, every meal you didn't right. eat, and yeah. that's what they're fed. But um, but if you actually try and you know do something different, and uh, you know for example, I've been experimenting with ways to replace egg and things like pancakes and uh, or little fritters and things like that. And there are so many things you can use as a binding agent: flaxseed, chia, bananas. And also aquafaba, like the the, the soy chickpea. Actually, it's the chickpea byproduct. Yeah, yeah, it's the water from the can of the chickpea. You can whip that up, and it's like a egg white. You can make meringues with it. You can make nice, fluffy, um, you know, savory kind of fritters and stuff with it. You know, like it's so exciting actually to be able to look at it from this other perspective. And you know, and given the environmental kind of uh, strains on the environment that the meat industry is putting you know, on the world, and we only have one earth, we're all being really lazy if we're not trying to find a way to, you know, overcome this and, and find joy and just, you know, taking that one extra step and doing something a little bit different. Yeah. You know, uh, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I didn't want to finish without kind of addressing, well, not addressing, but I would love to hear you talk about, since you're here now, and you talked a little bit about this when you were in New Zealand, you saw yourself as a bridge person. Mm-hmm. Now you're here as a bridge person. And how do you see your role as a bridge person here in China as a Kiwi mm-hmm. in China? And how is it driving what you're doing now? I, I really want, um, so in China, Everybody talks about this because there's a huge economic opportunity about this uh, around this, but there's a huge uh, shift in consumption kind of trends in China. There's a huge rise in the middle class, and now not only in the tier one cities, but also flowing out through um, tier two, three, four cities as well. Um, you know, and we see a trend uh, that Chinese are consuming, you know, more and more kind of fast foods and stuff like going down the same line as uh, Americans. America. Yeah. Uh, one of the things actually, we're a bad example. <laughs> I'll, I'll put that out there. Yeah. One of the things in my uh, like previous job in the um, New Zealand kind of tourism board as well, that, that I did that I didn't like, I always cringed every time somebody said this, but China is Westernizing. I didn't, I mm. never really like to use that. The China's not Westernizing. China is appropriating things into the culture that work for their lifestyle. So as an example, I mean, in, in social media, China's created WeChat and eCash in China is m- far more advanced than anywhere else in the world. But when they first started, you know, maybe WeChat was seen as another, uh, another kind of WhatsApp or something. Um, but there's similarly in the food side, 
you know, you, we are seeing more sugary foods. We are seeing an increase in diabetes. We are seeing definitely an increase in the consumption of red meat in China. And, you know, this is a bad trend that I feel like we can bypass and actually learn from the mistakes of the West in a way, if you will. So I feel like, um, and also actually the good news is that in the West, uh, there are all these new healthier products that have come out because they've passed that, that point of chronic disease and wanting to battle chronic disease. They've already seen the effects on society, the effects on, uh, on the government and, and the economy, and, uh, and they want to bypass it with these healthy products. I see myself in my role as the bridge being able to take some of that uh, in the, I don't know, time traveler in a way, <laughs> from a health perspective, um, take some of that as a time traveler, um, some of those, uh, you know, new food consumption trends and products and cuisines and things, and then appropriating that into kind of the Chinese landscape in a way that would make sense for China. So for example, my yogurts, um, although they have a, uh, definitely a European or Greek kind of texture, um, the flavor is, uh, um, based on lots and lots of feedback that I got from, uh, especially my Chinese clients on how they like the balance of acidity versus sweetness so it's different. If that's, if like that's that. actually a difference between you making it for yourself because you need a dairy replacement correct and then you saying oh i can sell this but then you got to figure out how that works for them correct yeah, yeah. i mean it was definitely a lot that's more the bridge tart. That's yeah the bridge. when i did it mm-hmm. um yeah so i see my role in uh being a bridge in china as uh you know really trying to create solutions for this market that is rapidly growing but has definitely growing pains and i want to be able to uh, help kind of alleviate the growing pains and also, you know, in some way provide uh, some sort of buffer for it to kind of develop in a way that is smarter and has learned from the mistakes of uh, other parts of the world. I love it. Well, thank you for coming in and thank you for making the awesome yogurt because I love it. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Well, another week, another awesome conversation, another fascinating take on the story of human migration. I am just loving these conversations, and I hope you are too. If you're listening to us on iTunes, or any podcatcher really, be great if you could leave us a review and a rating. It really will help people find us. If you like what you hear, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have suggestions for people we can interview, just reach out to us on Twitter. You can reach us at at migrationmedia underscore. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.